Good morning. Uh, my name is Michael Boland. I uh, have the privilege of preaching today. I'm a member here at Res City. I'm also, uh, I get to serve on the governance team, which is a great joy. Um, I'm not typically the one who preaches, but uh, Joel and Julie have adopted, and they're on a much-needed time of parental leave. So we're happy to give that to them, and I'm happy to step in. Uh, we'll make sure to pray as they welcome Graceland into their, their family um, later on in the service. Um, from Speaking of children, from, from recent experience, uh, I can say that I know this church does a, a great job taking care of families as they welcome children into their, into their fold. Uh, we had Jameson, he's in the middle of the service right there, a little distracting for me. I'll avoid looking at him. Um, back in April, we had him, so he's about seven months now, and uh, we were the recipient of many meals and prayer uh, from you guys, so from the bottom of our heart, Allie and I want to say thank you for being the kind of congregation that takes good care of each other, uh, no matter what season or stage of life you're in. I think um, it doesn't always show up as uh, care for parents. Uh, we care well for each other no matter what stage of life we're in. So thank you for, for being that um, to each other. Uh, so a couple of pictures there. Uh, you can see that uh, having a child is uh, sleepy sometimes. It's, it's hard work. Um, Jameson wanted to say uh, thank you for being awesome also. There's a picture of him on the left. Uh, he uh, doesn't really give us eye contact when we want to take pictures of him, but if a babysitter takes pictures of him, it shows up great. So uh, that's, that's that picture. On the right side there is, is Allie and I. Um, I'm going to share just a little bit about our family quick because that's what guest preachers do. Uh, Allie and I have been married for about five and a half years now. And uh, we, we live in St. Anthony Village, if you know where that is, just north of northeast Minneapolis. We actually met at the church that's in the picture there. That's the church that Res City planted out of called Hope Community Church in downtown Minneapolis. And similar to Joel and Julie, we were uh, in the leadership development program that they were involved with. So similar experience to Joel and Julie. Um, community group-wise, we're a part of the a uh, group that meets at Zach and Ashley Doman's house in White Bear Lake. Um, Allie's also a co-leader at that group. Uh, shout out to any of our community group members in service here and online if you watch it later. Uh, love you guys. For work, Allie and I both have our, our foot in the door with the educational world, specifically um, Allie works as a volunteer coordinator at a private school in South Minneapolis called Hope Academy. I used to work there, so you can see a picture of us. It's hard to make out our faces because it was a shady day. Um, but uh, I used to be a sixth grade math and science teacher there for three years, really enjoyed that. Uh, and I've recently transitioned to work for an organization called the Spreading Hope Network. Uh, the Spreading Hope Network essentially is trying to uh, duplicate and replicate what Hope Academy is doing around the country by starting up uh, new schools. So really enjoying the new job. I get to sort of play an operational leadership role for our organization. So that's just a little bit about us. Um, today's sermon is uh, continuing the, the series that we've been in about parables that Jesus uh, gives during his ministry. And uh, I'm excited today uh, for, the, for the passage because I personally feel like it reminded me a lot of some very foundational seasons in my faith, and 
also reminded me of the gospel in a lot of ways. So usually a preacher, if they ask some key questions, they'll, they'll do that on the back end of the sermon. But to transition us into the sermon today, I want to um, ask a few questions for us to reflect on. Uh, so I'm going to invite you to take a moment to uh, get into a reflective posture if you want. Uh, you can definitely close your eyes at this point because we're going to transition into prayer right after. Um, so here we go. First question for us to reflect on. What does it feel like when you don't know whether or not someone is going to forgive you for something? I'm going to repeat that. What does it feel like when you don't know whether someone is going to forgive you or not? Second question. If you've accepted Christ, um, what was it like for you to first receive His forgiveness and how can you remember his forgiveness? Because it's important. So I'll say that again. If you've accepted Christ at this point, what was it like for you to first receive his forgiveness? And how can we continue to remember that? Third question. How does separation over time from that key moment of forgiveness change over time, your posture toward God or others. So let me say that again. How does separation over time from a key moment of forgiveness change your posture toward God or others? Let me pray. Join me. Father, this parable we're about to read from your son uh, is one that I hope both humbles us but also really showcases your great, great goodness to us. Um, it's easy to forget the, the deep sacrifice that you, you paid for us by, by dying on the cross, Jesus. And I pray that we would remember that. God, I also lift up the Stegmans as they continue to fold in Graceland, their, their new daughter, um, would you go before them? May we come around them as you, as you call us to and support them, um, bless them as they start this new chapter on their life. Be with us during this message. Help me um, speak well and clearly. Pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. My hope in posing those reflective questions for us to, uh, to start is that it puts us in a position of receptivity. So, I want us to uh, be ready to receive um, the message today. So, that's why I started with those questions. The title of today's message is The Necessity of Forgiveness. And we're going to uh, jump in and engage with a passage uh, from Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. I'll read through the, the whole passage to start us off. So... Here we go. Um, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Because of this, the kingdom of heaven is like a king 
who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, or talents, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. I need to turn towards the screen because it's cut off on theirs. At this time, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in jail, into prison, excuse me, until he could pay the debt. Sorry, I need to turn around because there's a right-hand corner is uh, covered on the screen that I can see. I'll continue. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Is it not necessary for you to have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Shout out to the AV team for fixing that for me. Um, So now that I um, have read through the passage, I want to share just a, a couple helpful things. So I think it's sometimes helpful to, to have um, in our understanding of Scripture uh, sort of a structure of a passage or an outline of, of the events that have occurred. So um, I think this is helpful really for any literary work, um, but especially as we study Scripture. I've found that clarifying the order of the text can really help the meaning of the text arise more clearly. So To the best of my ability, that's what I've provided here. So at the beginning of the parable, we see that Jesus inquires of Jesus about limits for forgiveness, and then Jesus gives sort of a succinct response, and then after that, he begins to elaborate with this this parable. The first part of the parable, he starts by uh, sharing about a forgiving king who's uh, settling accounts, and then in parable uh, part two, uh, there's a a response that that servant that's forgiven a debt uh, has, and he's very unmerciful to a servant who owes him debt. And then after that, there's a um, sort of an uprising of witnesses to the event. Um, they, they pass along the word to the king that um, the servant that you canceled debt was extremely unforgiving and unmerciful to this, this other fellow. And then um, after that, the the justice is, is determined by the king for the unmerciful servant. And there's sort of an epilogue in verse 35 for a warning of, of accountability for anyone who is unmerciless, or excuse me, is merciless. Uh, a couple other helpful things. I think it's really uh, easy to lose track of the location um, where, um, where 
where events take place, especially in the Gospels. I don't know if you guys have experienced that when you read the Gospels. It's hard for me to take, uh, uh, keep track of where things are taking place. It's also hard to tell where, uh, excuse me, who uh, Jesus is speaking to at times. So real quick, location-wise, they're in uh, Galilee, which is in northern Israel. Uh, if you recall the Sea of Galilee, maybe, um, from other stories, that's where Jesus walked on water, and he also uh, calmed the storm with a single word. Um, so that, that's where it is. Um, specifically, they're in a city called Capernaum, which is in that region, and they're, they're in a house, um, and Jesus is speaking um, to his disciples. So that's the audience, is the disciples, and us. So let's, let's jump in. At the beginning of the passage, we see Jesus posing a question, like I said earlier. He's inquiring with Jesus about limitations for forgiveness. And I think we need to really see ourselves in, in Peter's question here. So if we just change the words slightly, we might be able to come up with something closer to what crosses our mind on a given day. So here's my amended version. Let me read this for us. How many times, Jesus, do I have to put up with, insert unlikable trait here, of my insert spouse, colleague, child, family member, neighbor, etc., before I'm free from my obligation to love them? What about if I just put up with them well enough to get by? Now Peter's speaking our language, something that maybe is tough for us to admit. I confess to these sorts of thoughts, for sure. Unfortunately, that's what goes on in my heart on occasion. So let's consider how Jesus responds to this question of Peter's. He says this, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. It may appear that Jesus is doing some simple multiplication as a sixth grade math and science teacher. It's my first thought. Just take the extent to which you're being forgiven at this moment in time, multiply it by 11, and you're probably good, right? There's far more going on than mathematics in Jesus' response. A strong possibility that I'm convinced of is that Jesus, being the good rabbi that he is, is referring to a specific passage from Genesis 4. So on the bottom there, Genesis 4.24, it says, If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Maybe Lamech is doing the exact same thing. I don't know. Well, let's talk about it. So in Genesis 4, a character named Lamech, that's who's speaking this, um, this phrase here, is boasting to his multiple wives about the way that he executes justice in his life. He says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. You can see some clear parallels between these two verses, specifically the numbers. So on the next few slides, I want to explain the backstory of the relationship between these two verses, Jesus' words and Lamech's words, because there's a contrast here, but there's also a connection. So, to start, backstory here, Adam and Eve had two boys, or excuse me, before that, <laughs> um, at the beginning of the Bible, Jesus, uh, excuse me, God kicks off the human project with Adam and Eve. He appoints humanity as his image bearers, places them in the Garden of Eden, and then these characters are deceived 
by a slithery figure into disobeying God's command not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. An important point to know about that, um, that command is that it's, it's not God saying you, you, you can't eat from this private, exclusive fruit tree that I have in my garden. When, when Adam and Eve disobey that command, it's actually, in a lot of ways, a, a declaration of their rebellion to God. And we all do this in our own, own ways. Adam and Eve took it into their own hands to become independent determiners of good and evil apart from God. And you can tell that this is what it was because that determinism that's independent apart from God is sort of passed on to their children, one of which was named Cain. Adam and Eve had two boys. Their firstborn, like I said, is named Cain, and their secondborn is named Abel. One day, they both brought offerings before the Lord, and God showed favor to Abel's and not to Cain's. That throws Cain into a tailspin of jealousy, and he determined that for himself, the right thing to do, because I'm jealous right now, is I'm going to go and go ahead and murder my brother. And he does, unfortunately. And God's judgment towards Cain is that he would be under a curse. Since he spilled the blood of his brother on the ground, the ground would no longer bear crops for him. And Cain was to become a restless wanderer in the land that his family had been exiled to outside of the garden. And Cain's response to that judgment is, I'm afraid somebody is going to kill me. He's afraid for his survival. And the Lord says to Cain, and this is really gracious of God, anyone who kills Cain is going to suffer vengeance seven times over. So it's sort of a promise of protection in a way that um, anybody who tries to, to kill you, Cain, is going to have a severe penalty. And this story of, uh, of, of a promise to Cain, Cain probably passed that on to the generations that came after him because four generations later, a descendant of Cain named Lamech makes reference to it. And this is the verse that we're talking about that's connected to Jesus's. In his arrogance, Lamech takes God's words that he said to Cain previously and uses him to, to justify his response to justice. The thing that he says right before this is that I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. So Lamech's way of going about justice is somebody hurts me, death for them, right? So he's twisting, he's twisting God's promise to Cain to justify his approach to justice. But what's going on with Jesus's connection to this? Why is he, why is he sort of connecting this? So the gist of what is going on here is that Jesus, in bringing this up, is teaching his disciples what I'll call interpersonal kingdom justice, the ways that we treat each other, right, when things go wrong with our relationships. And at the same time that Jesus is making this teaching, he's also doing something else. He's laying bare humanity's shortcomings along these lines. We're not very good at this. He's making reference to sort of the, 
the beginnings, the genesis of humanity's inability to approach justice in a godly way. He's saying that Peter and the disciples are as much descendants of Cain as he desires for them to become inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. So this is, this is not math. This is not a multiply by 11 and you're good. This is heart surgery. He wants us to recognize that we all need to reconsider the way that we go about forgiving or the lack thereof. At this point, I'd say we're ready for a deeper understanding of the kingdom. We are being invited out of the sinful ways that we're descending from and invited into our generous inheritance in Christ. That's what Jesus is setting up here. And that, that inheritance of the kingdom is one where forgiveness is not scarce. Let me say that again. Be very clear. What we're inheriting through Christ is a kingdom where forgiveness is not scarce, but abundant. I want to share, uh, share about one of my favorite movies here. Any fans of V for Vendetta? Huh? Huh? Okay, I see a few people pointing to, to others. Nobody wants to admit it, though. Um, so one of my favorite movies is V for Vendetta, and there's this shadowy figure that goes by the alias V, and he is sort of attempting throughout the movie to uh, set his plot in motion to overthrow a tyrannical government that is at hand. And it's in a dystopian version of London, and he has this poetic chant that he, he utters throughout the film in different ways. It almost acts as the drumbeat for his ongoing commitment to this overthrow. And it starts with the line here. The line says, remember, remember the 5th of November. That's today. <laughs> remember, remember the 5th of November. So that phrase is also a historical nod to a guy named Guy Fawkes. Um, I don't know the complete story, but he apparently had a mask like that or looked like that, but the, the vigilante here um, wears that mask for that reason. So while V, this shadowy vigilante, is, is trying to make this memorable overthrow of this tyrannical government in this movie, I'd like, to, like us to sort of remember a different kind of revolution at hand here. Maybe the 5th of November can now become a holiday for us where we remember this revolution that I'm, I'm going to talk about. And that's up to you if you want to celebrate that holiday. But I really want us to remember something that is connected to the next part of the parable. So let's continue. It says this. Because of this, pause. I know I didn't get very far, um, but I need to elaborate. So when Jesus, uh, excuse me, when, when, the, when the phrase is, is said here, because of this, uh, Jesus is, is picking up from his comments about forgiving 77 times, saying that because of humans' capacity uh, to be just, because that is fundamentally flawed, and because humans seek to make forgiveness this scarce good, here's what the kingdom of heaven must be like. So because of that, here's what the kingdom is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
So he starts by saying the kingdom of God is like some sort of ruler who has resolved to settle a bunch of accounts. You could also say the kingdom is like, uh, like that moment when the bill comes due and you're wondering, do I have enough to pay this? That's something we might fearfully wonder. So I, I'm sure that the king had a lot of accounts to, to settle, but the, the parable goes on to focus on one servant in particular. So let's continue. The servant the parable zooms in on is a man who owes 10,000 talents. Um, it says bags of gold, but the more proper translation is talents. Talents were uh, not like giftings. They were uh, units of measure used for currency at that time. Now, debt is a fairly common experience, especially in the U.S., whether that would be um, student debt, whether that's a mortgage, uh, many other forms of debt. Uh, so to some degree, we can contextualize this. I'll use the example of student debt. Let's say somebody graduated from college with uh, $10,000 in debt. We'd probably say that that's not a very bad spot to be in, especially if they get a decent paying job. They'll pay that off soon enough if they're wise in their stewardship. But $10,000 is not 10,000 talents. Let me tell you, about 10,000 talents here. So I'm going to quote from a guy named Klein Snodgrass. Joel and Julie have been quoting from his book, Stories with Intent, uh, several times throughout this sermon series. It says this to elaborate on the 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents would be about 204 metric tons in weight. Wow. Depending on which metal was used, a talent was the equivalent of about 6,000 denarii, which would make the servant's debt 60 million denarii, because you multiply it by 10,000. If the servant made a denarii a day as a wage that, it's, that is mentioned in Matthew 22 says, then this debt would require about 164,000 years to repay. Whoa. Certainly, the debt is enormous and pushes the bounds of believability, but parables often contain hyperbole and tend to be pseudo-realistic. The main point is that the debt is so high that no possibility exists of the servant ever repaying it. The master notices the man's inability to pay, so he demands the family's entire estate Give me everything you got. Yikes. The unbelievable debt here that he's talking about parallels the infinite debt that we have toward God in our sin. And as the kingdom began with Jesus' arrival on the scene and at the beginning of his ministry, I would say there's this ongoing need for anyone as they encounter Jesus and become aware of him, to respond to the bill that's coming due. So, as the kingdom comes into our life, there's this encounter that we have with a bill coming due. So, the kingdom can be likened to a ruler ordering payments on all of our hyperbolic debts. And maybe this is leading us to recall some of the reflections on the first question I posed earlier. What does it feel like 
when you don't know if someone will forgive you. Got a big debt. I don't know if it's going to be forgiven. Perhaps some words you may use to describe that feeling are helpless or desperate. That's certainly how I describe how the servant appears before his master in verses 26 and 27 here. He's begging and pleading for more time. Give me more time. I can just pay it off if I had more time. He's attempting to assure the king of of his payment in the future. And in view of the condition that the servant is in, the, the master takes pity on him, cancels the debt, and lets him go on his merry way. This is the moment that I want us to remember. Remember, remember. Not the 5th of November, but this debt cancellation. You'd expect this man to say maybe with tears in his eyes, something like, Master, I won't forget this. Thank you so much. Thank you, my king. I'll never forget this. None of that. There's a significant gap between the end of verse 27 here and the beginning of verse 28 coming up, and we need to talk about it. I really want to pause and focus on something important here. So, let me talk about it. The significant gap that I'm referring to between those two verses is, I think, something that we can all relate to. We have this wide chasm of forgetfulness between the space and time when we have our debts canceled by God and the moment that that drifts away from our memory and we forget about it. That space between those two things is something we really, really need the good news of Jesus in. Let me tell you about an experience that I had at a or excuse me, in a, in a different season of my walk with Christ. So there was a point in time where I really, really struggled with an inability to shake a sense of pridefulness and indifference that often came up in my heart. And in my response to that, I kept operating as if my relationship with God depended on my efforts to remove those shortcomings from my heart. I established my my ability to get rid of those things as my basis for, for relationship with God. Maybe you have felt similarly here. So I need to allow Psalm 103 to, to speak into that. It tells a different story about how God operates. He does not operate according to our sin, not as we deserve, but rather according to His great love. So great is his love. Remember, remember our king's cancellation. He has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. I have no idea where east and west are right now. That doesn't mean between a W and an E on a compass. That means from way over there to way over there, our sin is separated. And in the middle is you and I. Loved by God, loved and forgiven by God. That's how God operates with us. Remember, remember our King's cancellation. If you have the difficulty, like me, in remembering God's forgiveness, a practical step that I find helpful 
is making a habit of, uh, of worship through song. Um, and you've got to find some good songs that really have lyrics that your heart needs to hear. And here's some lyrics that uh, stood out to me at a point in time when I was first sort of starting to consistently go to church um, uh, around the time of uh, the beginning of college. And the lyrics say this. It says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Maybe some of you recognize that song. Another part of that song I really love says this. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. We all need these sorts of reminders, don't we? Let me give you a, a little bit of a story about how Allie and I both needed this reminder recently. Recently, Allie and I had a, uh, a conflict, and we were feely, feeling pretty bad about ourselves. And God led us to remember a key piece of the gospel, I would say. This key piece is that the gospel teaches us to move from focusing so much on how sinful or bad we are and more on His incredible goodness. In those moments, Allie and I were reminded that Christ even paid for our sinfulness toward each other throughout the argument that we had. I'm sure other people can relate to that. Yes, even those sinful moments were taken care of on the cross. Again, remember, remember our King's cancellation. Back to the parable here. Let's continue. So you'd hope, after this cancellation of the kings to the servant, that the servant went forth and became a forgiving, gracious, and merciful individual. Instead, he became impatient, violent, and demanding. You'd think when God forgives us, we'd become like him in being gracious and forgiving. But if we admit it, we often show the same ugliness that existed in our hearts before He forgave us. So we can relate to the servant here. The words that the man says are the words, or excuse me, let me back up. The words that the man said to the king previously in desperation are now mirrored back to him with this other guy that owes him money. And then there's this this phrase right after those words in the middle, but he refused. And it's like that mirror shatters with that phrase. Being merciless is a lot like throwing somebody into prison. I'm going to keep you captive to my resentfulness towards you. I'm going to throw you in that prison. That's not the reason that we're called to what we're called to. We're not supposed to do that. We are forgiven to be a release to other people. We've been released from captivity of our sin to be a source of release to others. So, remember that. Next verse, very briefly here, the colleagues of the man were witnesses to this encounter and were rightly outraged. And the news sort of gets run up the flagpole to the master. 
As the man enters the master's chambers, there's no room for pleasantries here at all. Right away, you wicked servant. He calls him out, holds him to account. The words here where it says, is it not necessary, are the thrust of the intent of this parable, I would say. Mercy and forgiveness are the way God treats us. Is it not necessary that we ought to join God in that towards others? Let me uh, share a quote from Klein Snodgrass again. What a great name, by the way. Um, He says, the intent of the parable is that God's prior action of mercy and forgiveness is to be extended to other people. The expectation that humans conform their lives to the character of God is present throughout all of Scripture. So, while one of my prayers for this sermon is that we would recognize the goodness of God, I also hope that this part of the parable really really humbles us. And the next verse, verses continue to that end. So, let's keep going. Earlier in the Psalms passage from Psalm 103, I said, uh, well, not just me, but the passage said that God did not deal with us according, or does not deal with us according to our iniquities. So, when we read this part where the master put the man he originally created, excuse me, canceled, let me back up, this part where he put the man he originally canceled an enormous debt for into jail, not only that, but to be tortured for the foreseeable future, I feel tension with that on numerous levels, and maybe you do too. To be honest, there are some parts of justice that I feel are unsavory. Maybe you feel similarly. Um, For me, I, I think I need to recognize that that's more my problem than God's problem. Snodgrass had some helpful notes on this also. He says, the problem with this parable is that the king is both very attractive and magnanimous in, in his character, but also it seems like he's problematic in that he can renege or return on his forgiveness and send his servant to the torturers. As much as people recoil from the theme of judgment, it is an integral part of Jesus' kingdom message. It's key. The kingdom cannot be present if evil is not being named and defeated. This text is a clear example of the tension between two or more truths that are always present in Christian theology. The community cannot tolerate sin without confrontation and reproof, but must always love and forgive at the same time without limits. Deciding between the two of those and what should be done is always a matter of wisdom. So after I read that phrase that it's a matter of wisdom between the two, uh, I had a passage from Proverbs 1. I don't have it on the screen, but I'll read it for us. This came to mind. A father in this passage is talking to his son about avoiding association with certain sinful men. He says this, these men, these sinful men, lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away, referring to ill-gotten gain, it takes away the life of those who get it. So, 
I'd say that that's pretty descriptive of all of our antagonists so far mentioned. Lamech, Cain, and now this unmerciful servant are all sort of setting themselves up in their approach to justice to really just take away their own life. So being unmerciful, it may cause harm and imprison others, but it really robs us if we are unmerciful towards others. So I think that's part of the reason why Jesus ends with a, with a warning, out of care. And I'm going to allow Snodgrass to comment on it because his words are way better than what I can come up with. He says this, God's mercy must not be treated cavalierly. Mercy is not effectively received unless it is shown. For God's mercy is a transforming one. If God's mercy does not take root in our hearts, then it really isn't experienced. Forgiveness is not shown if forgiveness is not known. Freely you received, so you ought to freely give. The forgiveness of God must be replicated in the lives of the forgiven. And the warning is clear. Where forgiveness is not extended, people will be held accountable. So, Res City, may we heed that warning. It's a caring one. Let mercy take root in our lives. Let the forgiveness of the Lord take root so that we may extend it out. The Apostle Paul calls the Ephesian church later on um, to, I th- to I think something of what this parable is speaking to. So let me read the verse. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is our calling. Remember, remember the cancellation of our King. Let's continue to walk in the way of Christ. As we transition to communion, perhaps some of the questions during the introduction may be good for you to continue to reflect on, so I'll put those on the screen now for us. The question that I personally want to reflect on is the third one here. How does separation over time from a key moment of forgiveness change your posture toward God or others? I hope we don't forget, and I hope it doesn't turn me, as I forget, into being unmerciful because God has been so merciful to me. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus is welcome to partake in communion at Resurrection City, Uh, and this time is a great practical reminder of God's forgiveness to us, which is what our parable is aiming at training us in. So, both the bread and the juice remind us of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, His blood and His body that canceled our great debt of sin. So, let me pray for our time of reflection worship, and communion that we're about to transition into. Father, you are the King who has canceled our debts. Your Son did that for us, and your Spirit reminds us of that. So, as we transition into reflection and communion, God, would you bless this time so that 
um, our hearts are solidly anchored in the truth that you are forgiving and merciful. Uh, be with us, Lord, as we go out into the world um, to be forgiving to others as we have been forgiving. Since we have been forgiven much, Lord, may we forgive much in our lives. Pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.